Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Eleventh of August, Wednesday. Geese calls across the dawn skies, haunting echelons black against grey. Rooks rise and fall, sharp and jagged silhouettes, riding a wilder wind than the one that brushes my skin. Wilder souls in a world that will not be tamed. An hour or so ago, the quarter moon slipped below the horizon, and the soft pigeon calls that purred across the twilights have now fallen silent. And this is Narrowboat Erica, welcoming you aboard. Thank you so much for coming. It seems that overnight almost, the season's wheel has turned, and that vibrant promise of summer has now melded into the softer haze of drowsy late summer. And no doubt high summer has still some energy left within it and will return. And in fact, the meteorological models do promise some warm or even hot spells ahead of us. But the hedgerows and the skyscapes have that languid, almost dreamy quality about them. The smoke of thistle-down pillows the hedges, and old man's beard begins to emerge, and the willow herb fuse, although still young, is primed to burn down into autumn. And the nearby plum tree hangs heavy with sweet, juicy fruit. Wasps pirouette in a buzzing halo around it. And the apple tree, halfway up the hill, bears apples coloured like a child's drawing of lime greens and pillarbox red fruit. And the elderberries are now slowly turning from green to midnight by the fleeting cloud-shy sun, and the blush of red can be detected on hip and hoar, and the cuckoo pint flames scarlet in those dark places it loves, and the slow turns dark purple and cloudy above our heads. It's a time of fullness, of repleteness, as if the countryside is settled down after a big and heavy meal and is content. And our world here has been characterised as by busyness and movement, contrasted by that feeling of a dozing, fruitful earth. And it's been lovely to see folks holidaying on and beside the canal. And today, one of Donna's work colleagues and friends came to visit, Anna Faye. Hello, Anna Faye. 
It's been lovely to see you at long last. And she's interested in living in small spaces and has converted to van and made a really lovely job of it. Very impressive. And so we took a trip down to Wilmcott Winding Hole under a sky which didn't know whether to rain or be sunny. And while we were out the final stages of a long-running saga that has gripped us here played itself out. And I know a number of you have been following it on the Nighttime on Still Waters Facebook page. Late on Wednesday evening, one of our neighbours noted that the swan pair no longer had their signet with them. And others then confirmed that there was no sight of it, and we feared that they'd lost their last signet. One of the boaters walked up the canal to what we think is the end of their territory, just under Preston Bagot, and there was no sign or sight of the signet. And so our, our worst fears were confirmed. And I, I think our shock was primarily because most of us felt that the most vulnerable time, the, the riskiest time for it had passed. It was now a small juvenile swan, well able to look after itself and quite a formidable opponent for a predator to attack. And also, I'd seen them together in the afternoon. And so it must have happened during the daylight and it must have happened very close to us. And where we are, there are lots of people walking around. And an attack in daylight where lots of people are around is very unlikely. It's just not the situation for a predator attack. And it really could only be something the size of a fox. And even a fox would actually have difficulty now in bringing the signet down, particularly if it was in the presence of its parents, which we felt that it was. And so there was a lot of unanswered questions. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why we were so concerned about what had happened. On the next day, a number of the boaters here were walking up and down the canals trying to have a look for it. And, and in the afternoon, one of them spotted it, or certainly spotted a lone signet, five bridges down towards Stratford, well out of the territory of this family. He reported it back, and another of our neighbours, Jan, got in contact with the swan man at Stratford, who looks after and knows all about swans. And he and his wife could then come along by now getting a little bit later on in the afternoon or towards the evening and could just check it over and it seemed to be fine and actually fending itself and just the Cyril, the swan man, felt that actually if the worst comes to the worst, it would now be able to actually fend for itself, it can feed itself and, and probably protect itself to a certain extent. What really concerned him and us was that it was the opposite side of the lock, which 
acted as the boundary of the territories between the swans that are living close to us and another pair of swans. And the signet was seen to be trying to contact these swans, swim close to the swans, and we knew that if that was the case, then these swans would kill it. And so for its own safety, it was felt that we needed to try and capture it and um, bring it into the, this territory. Although by now there was a little bit of doubt whether our swans would accept it or whether they would reject it. The first attempt failed and the light was failing. And so on Saturday morning, another attempt was made by Cyril and his wife and a couple of poses here, Jan and Carl. And that was much more successful. And they managed to bring it back and try to reintroduce it. But unfortunately, by the time they brought the signet back, our swans had now gone. So then we, uh, at least the signet was in there. Uh, in in a safe space. And this is at the point where we had then left because we'd gone with Anna Faye down towards Wilmcup. So, but apparently after a quite a, a strategic performance involving inflatable boats and things, the, the swan, the signet was reunited with the parents. The parents accepted it and all is happy and content. And in fact, I saw them just a few hours ago before the dusk and they were contentedly sitting on the bank together and just foraging gently and as if nothing had happened so a happy ending to quite a saga just a quick hello and thank you for all your comments particularly those who were following the swan saga on Facebook page, Angie Gray Adams and Sarah Wally and Nancy Jean Armstrong and Carol Knight Ennis and Tony Bell and many others. And thank you. And um, I think we were all very pleased and relieved when the little one was reunited. At this point, I just want to say a special mention to Captain Mark Dexter. Mark, if you remember during the times of the lockdown as captain of the ship that was moored off Tenerife for really the the length of that lockdown. Well, Mark has returned to his ship following his shore leave and has started a YouTube channel where he does short vlogs, really just talking about life as a, a captain. Now, Mark is a really interesting person and a, a very good communicator anyway. And he's fascinating in as much as, particularly if you're interested in narrowboats and canal life, the the contrast, but also the, the surprising similarities between life aboard a narrowboat and life aboard a, a big ship. So I'll put the link to Mark's vlogs in the program notes below. And while talking of things that you really need to just check out, uh, another of our listeners, Steve May from the Narrowboat Blue Phoenix, has also started a YouTube channel in which he is posting his 
poems and his thoughts. And again, a must subscribe. And I'm sure that people who like Nighttime on Still Waters will very much enjoy and appreciate Steve's thoughts. And there's a lot of similarities in the way in which we think about life and connect with the environment. And again, I'll put Steve's link on the program notes below. As ever, I really enjoy hearing about all you're doing, your thoughts, your ideas. And also, if you want to ask me any questions, and please do contact me either on our Facebook page, Twitter page, or Instagram, or at nighttime on stillwaters at gmail.com. Again, the contact uh, links are in the program notes below. So please do feel free just to get in touch. Some places seem to take on an importance or significance that probably far outweighs their geographical nature and place. It's their genius loci, spirit of place. It's an ancient term that's rooted back to the time where places were felt to be invested by spirits or genies and inhabited by extra-natural phenomena. But it's also a term that's taken on a renewed significance in the form of genius of place and environmental planning. An old idea, an ancient wisdom that has been rediscovered, perhaps if not so much for its wisdom, but for its ability to articulate and encapsulate complex ideas and thoughts about place and location. And if ever there is a place that is invested with this significance, even if just on a personal level, this here is one of them. It's a gladed stretch of the canal under a copse of mature poplar trees. And hundreds, perhaps even thousands, will pass it by. Maybe some will give it an odd glance to appreciate, perhaps, the dappling of sun on water and remark about the lambs scaling the precipitous root-quarried warren of a bank on the opposite side, and then they pass on. But here, beside milepost 16 on the South Stratford Canal, is somewhere special. We first came here by happy accident, born from desperation. That summer had turned furnace hot, the kind of heat that drips from a molten sun and makes the field shimmer, the kind of heat you dreamt for in the thin needling rains of February but you can never really imagine it would ever be this hot. The kind of heat that makes men swear and can turn a passing encounter into a Tennessee Williams play or novel. 
and on that day in that summer of heat. Even though it was still quite early, it was hot. The cabin's sides and roof were too hot to touch, and Donna called out, just to get to the next shady spot where we can safely moor. And then for the next quarter of a mile or so, the canal, like a strip of molten metal, wound past the beds thick with reeds and rushes. And then, standing in the bow, she called out as the canal turned a bend and straightened. And although the sides were shallow, we didn't care. Tall poplar trees scraped the scorched sky, and their outstretched branches and spreading triangular heraldic leaves offered much-needed shade. And for the rest of the day and night, we reveled in its coolness, its dappled beauty. The glare of the canal shimmered on our leafy canopy and the dusky twilight played around the straight pillar-like trunks, blending into the velvet dark of a high summer night. It's a memory we both share and cherish. And now we are back again, another hot day, when heat like liquid lead rolls off the cabin roof. But we knew exactly where to head for, the poplars beside milepost 16. 16 miles from Birmingham, 16 miles from King's Norton where the canal starts, 16 miles it could be 1600 miles, another land, another country, a distance not measured by length, but by how much the spirit and mind can breathe. And so, again, we moored, tying up under the slow snowfall of yellow poplar leaves. Trees also feel the heat and dryness. And this time we've stayed for a couple of days. Nestled among the broad reed blades and the floss of meadow sweet. The yellow flags are over, but the flare of purple loose strife lights the towpath banks. Opposite, on the other side of the canal, the earthy bank knotted with tree roots forms an adventure ground for foraging juvenile sheep still bleating for their mothers and waiting head up for their reassuring call. And they clamber and scramble over the precipitous slopes. And that bank is peppered with holes and dark places, earthy worlds, home to the wilder things. At each day's zenith, when the sun is at the peak of its solar swing, Little groups lie in clusters beneath some mature ash trees at the water's edge. And below this lies Lock 36, tucked beside Bridge 46, a characteristic 
Stratford Canal Bridge, with its distinctive one-inch gap in the centre of its span to let the tow rope through in the days of horse-drawn barges. The top block is leaking. Not as leaky as some a little lower. Foaming water, cloud white, rooster tail pluming from the bottom of the gates and through the central join. It fills the air with noise and the scent of weed and wet algae. The winding gear is well greased, rattling ratchets thickly covered in slippery black treacle. For me, it's always the sound of summer childhood. And below the lock and bridge, the bywash sweeps back into the canal with insects, the smell of sheep, and the green trouty scent of still waters stirred. The air is soporific here. Somehow we've wandered into the land of the lotus eaters. The waters run and fall hypnotically, as butterflies and damselflies transform the world with darts of colour. Who would want to leave this halcyon sweet place of cool grass, warm red brick and running water? Over Bridge 46, the towpath crosses from the east bank to the west, and a footpath darts off into thick undergrowth. No more than a fox or badger track, the nettles grow high and thick. And if you follow that path with me, it'll lead you to a hazel copse whose leaves and catkins hang like drowsy bats and through which runs a winding brook. The waters ripple, cool in the festering heat, and the earth, still muddy and rich, river song in high summer. A dog barks in the distance. And if you peek through the undergrowth, round the corner is what looks like the ruins of a bridge. It stands thick with foliage, ivy and nettle green. We're treading here on older ground, when the world was filled with the sound of living waters that chuckled and sung a song that we no longer understand. A landscape wilder, wider, unfenced, so different to the pickaxe cut cut yards away, and yet now united 
in a world of noise, skies threaded with aeroplanes. A boat passes through the lock. Butterflies chase, dragonflies dart. A lone wasp circles my head and flies off. And now it's evening. And a moon for harvest has yet to rise in the softening skies. And the westering sun, still heavy and sticky and full of insects that make raindrop circles on the surface of the motionless water. But here, beneath the stand of poplars, it's cool. And the water runs cold through my toes when I dangle them from the stern. The sheep, once more, forsaking their prairie brown tall grasses lit yellow by the sinking sun, scramble down the precipitous bank for one more forage amongst the nettle and elder and ivy that hung above the water. And listen, and listen. Through the veil of net dance and the golden shimmer of poplar leaves to my west, soft on the evening air, a distant bell tolls, ringing out across the meadow, slow single chimes. The call to evening service a village church. Its insistent voice softened by dove and evening light. This is the Narrowboat Araka, signing off for the night and wishing you a very peaceful, restful night. Good night. Temperature outside, 14.9 degrees. Inside, 21 degrees. Humidity, 68%. Dew point, 14 degrees. Wind direction, southwest. Wind strength, 5 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 1016.6 falling. Cloud cover, 76%. Cloud ceiling, 20,400 feet. Precipitation, nil. Moon phase, 41.7%, waxing crescent. Day length, 14 hours, 
44 minutes. Sunset, 20.33. Skycasting, 5.51.